The 1960s and 70s were the golden era for sports car racing. This would be a little different from NASCAR, which is stock car racing, and different from Formula One. But overall, it's auto racing, high-speed adrenaline, and gasoline. Of course, the exciting action is usually on the track, but no driver or car would be fit without a crew to back them up, which is where Judy comes in. My name is Judy Stropus, and I'm in Ridgefield, Connecticut. I have a public relations business. I did try to retire 12 years ago from going to 40 races a year, but I quickly got pulled back into the PR business. So I'm very busy with PR clients right now, all in the motorsports field and car collector field. Judy's been doing PR for a while, but at the same time, during the 60s and 70s, Judy's other skill as an auto race timer had her being one of the most sought after crew members in the United States. Before teams had computers and instant digital readouts, they had Judy and people like Judy for going sleep while using analog chronographs and number three pencils to give drivers and their teams accurate data about the speed of their cars. You're listening to the NAWCC podcast. I'm Anna Tran. In today's episode, you'll hear about Judy's career as a pioneer in the discipline of auto race timing and the stories she tells that give us a glimpse into the golden era of sports car racing. Stay with us. Judy was born in Lithuania and her family came to the United States in 1949. We came in after World War II. My father was left in Europe. Not sure of the reasons for all of that, but he was a surgeon. My mother was a nurse. My cousins are professors and intellectuals, and and I'm a racer. (laughs) Yep, that's right, a racer. A sharp deviation from the careers of her family. When Judy was a teenager, She met her boyfriend at the time through the same friend group when they would hang out at ice cream parlors after school. We fell in love and we were together for a long time, but he he taught me how to drive. He had a Jaguar XK120 and he taught me to drive. We joined the Queen's Sports Car Club, which is where I learned. Judy learned how to drive the cars, but this is also when she learned how to time them. So we'll get into the details of timing soon. But the basic idea is to record the seconds and minutes each time a race car crosses the finish line for the entirety of the race. Judy would go to racing events and eventually learn that many of the women from the car clubs would time their races. At places like Bridgehampton, New York, Lime Rock, Connecticut, other places, and I learned how to do that. And that's when I discovered, and they discovered how this was something I was uniquely good at. In addition to working other jobs, Throughout her early 20s, Judy went to professional races, met professional teams, and eventually, the teams realized that she could do the work. And not only do it, but she was the best at it. One time, when she was around 23 years old, Judy was on her way to one of the early races in her career. And she actually crashed the car she was driving in. I had an Alfa Romeo, Julia, and I crashed it in the Hamptons. And I didn't have a car and I had black eyes and scar. But I had to go to the next race in Maryland and help my friend time a race before the big race. The big race is on Sunday, his race was on Saturday. 
And these were long races, like three hour races, and the, the major race was five hours. And um, I took a bus to the race, and these friends of mine picked me up. And so then I scored the race for my friend on Saturday, and then Saturday evening, I went to a cocktail reception with these friends of mine, and he was a journalist for Auto Week magazine. Judy's friend introduced her to people and team owners from Ford and Lincoln Mercury. And during the conversation, someone from the teams said that they didn't know how they'd have the timing information on the cars during the race. And so my friend said, well, Judy does that. And they said, okay, why don't you do the race for us tomorrow? And we'll pay you $25. I said, okay. Judy went to the race and sat on top of a toolbox that was on a race stand. Clouds were forming above, so they put up some panels to shield her from the rain. And I scored the race for five hours sitting on that toolbox. And it was perfect. They had the information. I honestly don't remember if they won or somebody else won. But they took the charts back and they saw that they were perfect. And they called me the next day and said, you need to go to all the rest of the races around the country. We'll pay you everything. And I said, okay. Judy worked as a race timer on the weekends. But during the weekdays, she worked as a legal secretary and had a public relations business of her own. I had the opportunity to work for Carl Ludvigsen, an author, on the PR side. And that was only like 68, 60, it was not like the year after I started timing. And so I would work for him during the week. And that's where I learned public relations from him. And then on weekends, I would go to the races. People thought I stopped timing and started PR, but I always had the PR business. Today, when we watch a big race like NASCAR, as soon as a car crosses the start-finish line, we can see immediate readouts of their lap times and rankings on the screen. But this is only possible with transponders and microchips. And during the 60s and 70s, those were definitely not being used. The original way of timing these races was with a good, old-fashioned chronograph. Originally, it was a little Hoyer chronograph. If you watch CBS's, uh, what's the show? On Sunday night at 7 o'clock. Um, 60 Minutes? Yeah, 60 Minutes. The watch they use in their intros that goes tick, 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 tick. That's the watch. Okay, yeah. The first ones had only a fifth of a second, but somehow I can make it read to a tenth of a second. It's just, you know, bogus, but it was good enough. It had the sweeping hand, and then it had the split time. You had to write your time down and hit it again to catch up for the hand to catch up for the next car. I'd have my charts that I designed myself, my charts on blue paper, so the bright light, the sun, would be less bright on your eyes and big lap charts that you would paste together. And um, pencil and paper, pencil sharpeners. I only used number three pencils because they didn't wear down as quickly. Number two pencils would wear down very quickly, so you had to use number three pencils and a little electric pencil sharpener or battery-powered and um, a rain screen. Were those chronographs long-lasting? Did they ever die out on you? Well, we had spares. You wound it like a regular watch. You okay. wound it. So you would wind two watches or three watches at the start of a 24-hour race, and then you'd make sure you keep winding them. The other two were spares in case it broke. Mm -hmm. Then you pick up the other one. They're running at exactly the same time. Those were the tools of the trade. Judy would sit on an elevated platform for a view of the whole track. 
And you heard right. Judy did say a 24-hour race. Sports car races often go on for hours, lasting anywhere between three hours to 24 hours. I would write everything down and put it up on a magnetic board in front of the timing stand so they could look up at it and see the information. It's just little magnetic numbers. I had people moving numbers around. I would record everything that was happening and then write it on a piece of paper and hand it to the person to put it on the board and they would update it on the board. The reason they needed my expertise is when the races go beyond a certain amount of time, they have to make pit stops and they have no idea then where everybody comes out, what the results are. Anybody really could time a short race. The difficulty comes when they start making pit stops and it goes for hours and hours and they have to have the information instantly. To give you an idea of Judy's process and what she'd be looking at, I'll try my best to describe one of Judy's own charts she designed. So picture a long, tall rectangle, more space up and down than left to right. The rectangle is then divided into a grid, first with four long vertical columns I'll call A, B, C, and D, and 20 plus horizontal rows. And this would all be for a single car. So columns A and C are more narrow than columns B and D. This is to easily write the times in. Narrow columns for the minutes, wider columns for the seconds. Here's Judy explaining her charts at a presentation she did with the NAWCC. Okay, so here you would write in the first lap that he comes by. Your watch is constantly running. So he comes by at eight minutes. Next car comes by at 12 minutes and 14 minutes. And then uh, obviously he was earlier at 10. And, and then they come by again the next time, two minutes later, and you subtract and that's the lap time. And then next car comes by, subtract his time. They're the same cars pretty much every race uh, for the series you're working. So then you will always number them the same way. So you, your eye goes consistently to the right column. And so the actual method of timing is pretty complex. I tried to write an explanation, but it was really confusing for the audio format. For a complete breakdown of Judy's timing process, check out her book, which you can find online. Just search The Stropus Guide to Audio Race Timing and Scoring, Modern Sports Car Series. Judy could time 20 plus cars every lap. So imagine multiple large sheets of paper with column after column after column. You could probably imagine how dizzying the charts could look after the grids become filled. So I put them all in order. I look at my charts and I put it all in order and I write out a sheet and hand it out to the teams I work for. So the SCCA, the Sports Car Club of America, was the official sanctioning group at the time. And they had other people being timers for official races. But that information would only be available after races had finished. This wasn't good enough for sponsors and professional teams. What they really needed was real-time data and information to strategize during the race. Judy's skills were highly sought after. Many teams wanted her services. And later on in her career, she was able to curate the teams she worked for, allowing her to focus on the work that she wanted, work that paid well, and helped her business and livelihood. Other teams who weren't paying me couldn't get the information. They tried. But if they weren't paying, they weren't entitled to the information. So I would provide a sheet with the times and the cars in order, and they would have that information. 
When you were getting um, a lot of calls and your services were in high demand, how did you navigate choosing who to work for? Well, all those who could afford it. Yeah. And those who could afford it were the winners, were the top runners. Because mm-hmm. if I worked for 12 teams, I would charge them a nominal fee each, but I would make a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know. So if they couldn't afford that amount per race, you know, it's fine. You know, they were not winners that, if they had that kind of an attitude. So on race day or before the race day, you know, how did you prepare and how would you get ready for the race? Myself, physically? Yes. Well, if it's a long distance race, you know, keep in mind I was in my 20s. (laughs) When you're young, you can really survive some issues like having to go to the bathroom. You could keep from drinking, you would stop drinking water. I would never do that now, obviously, but you could stop drinking water and don't eat too much and just get certain like fruits and ice cream during the event. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had known then what I know now, I would have done it in a far better way than I, than I realized mm-hmm. because I was too young, I was naive. I just was so focused and so committed to doing this and doing it correctly because I was hired by the best teams in the world. And um, they were winning teams. These were not backmarkers. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I was really committed and focused. So I would just make it all happen. Not only were the physical demands challenging, but also mental demands were often an endurance game. There were plenty of potential distractions that could have pulled Judy's attention away from a race. The activity of the pit crew, cheers from the spectators, TV broadcasters. Once a race began, there were never moments where Judy could turn off her brain when timing. There are no moments because they don't stop the race. Uh, even in, if they have a yellow flag or a caution where, where the cars go slowly, you still have to ride them down. And it becomes very hard because they're all together now. They're not spread out. So there is no time. I remember a story that this friend of mine who was a TV reporter, he told me the story got just a few years ago, which is decades later. And he said, you remember when I tried to talk to you live on TV and you pushed me away? I go, no, I don't remember anything at all. He had held that grudge against me for all those decades that I wouldn't talk to him. I said, I can't stop. I can't stop to talk. I have to write the car numbers. There is no time. And I apologize now, decades later, but there was no way that I could speak to you. I mean, he should have realized that. I think he did eventually, but they don't stop the race for me to go to the bathroom, or they don't stop the race for me to do an interview. You know, I have to keep going. So I probably embarrassed myself and him on live TV, but that's the way it is. (laughs) Like anyone living on this earth, Judy is human. And although she rarely made mistakes when she timed races, she shared with me a story about an instance where one mistake made headlines on television and in newspapers. It was a race out in California, Riverside, and I knew I had missed a car. And I said, I'm just hoping it's a back marker. But it turned out to be the leader up front. And the reason I, this car had no number on it in my head. But what it was, his number one on the car was, was angled, and it was like a louver. And for that one split moment, I didn't see a number on that car. And I was saying, oh my God, I hope it. And it turns out that 
I didn't have him winning, but he actually indeed won because I missed that one lap. And oh my God, you'd think the world went upside down. And it was actually my friend who was helping me time. She was living out there. So she said, you come stay at my condo and we'll just not answer any phone calls or anything like that. So that was a big deal. And uh, I hated it to this day. I'll never forget it. But officials can make mistakes too. However, officials have backup. I don't have backup. During a race, I have a lap chart, and the timer, timing a certain number of cars, counts every lap as well. And you can tell if there's the lap missed because then you have a double time. So that's backup. That's my only kind of backup. In another instance, Judy shared a story about when her timing results were actually more accurate than the official timers of the four-hour 1969 Trans Am race. It was snowing, it was raining, everything happened that, that race. And at the end of the race, I have Parnelli Jones winning, but the officials say my team, Mark Donahue, won. So my team says, let's let them figure it out. Let's accept the win and let's just let them figure it out. Parnelli's team, meanwhile, also, they had professional timing, a different system than I used. Now, there were other groups of people whose results also had Parnelli Jones winning, but the officials of the race still had Judy's team with Mark Donahue winning. The officials go through the entire victory celebration, and they give the trophy to Judy's team. Mark Donahue accepts the trophy, but then, a short while later, race officials started looking for Judy. And now my team realizes, okay, the officials are looking for me in my lap chart. Let's just hide Judy somewhere. So they hid me into an office and closed the door, and it was dark. Now, when the officials came to the team and said, where's Judy in her chart? Oh, she's gone. She's with Roger on the jet. Judy often flew in a private jet with Roger Penske, the team owner. And at this time, Parnelli's team went to the officials, insisting that they had won. So they had to go back to all their backup lap charts and start over again and make a new lap chart, the complete four-hour race, which probably took eight hours. You know, it's, and by that time, I was secreted away back to the hotel or wherever I was. So by 10 o'clock that night, and Parnelli was still there, they figured out, the officials, that he had indeed won the race. Judy wrote a column in a magazine recounting the story. And there's a photo of Parnelli with a makeshift trophy made from a paper cup. So I always asked the team, my team, whatever happened to that trophy that uh, they said, well, I don't think they ever gave it back, but <laughs> so it might be in somebody's garage somewhere. I don't know. When I'd be on speaking panels about the old Trans Am days, I remember Parnelli, we would tell that story very often. And Parnelli is still, he laughs, but he says, yeah, I still, I, you know, I'm still mad at you, something like that. <laughs> you know, we'd laugh. Apart from the business and competitive sides, the world of sports car racing is Judy's community, and she met all sorts of people throughout her years timing races. Many times, Judy had an assistant with her when she timed a race. I did for several years have a regular assistant. Early on, I would, uh, I would recruit the wives and girlfriends. And then I did pay for one gal to be my regular assistant, so I would pay her expenses and a fee. 
The wives or girlfriends she mentioned were often at races because they were dating or married to one of the drivers or crew members. And Judy took the opportunity to recruit them to help her with timing. They really enjoyed it. They're telling me now decades later how much they enjoyed it. Her assistants helped her out with all types of things. Sometimes during long distance races, they would put up the magnetic numbers on the display board as the lap times were noted. I would have the gals stand with the clipboard and time one or two cars of the competitors, but I would time always the top cars. But I would have them time the lesser important cars just to have that information. From team owners, drivers, crew members, her assistants, to PR reps, broadcasters, and journalists, the people Judy had surrounded herself with, to her, are more than just business relationships. Oh my God, these are all my friends. This is my world. This is my social world and my business world. We live in a community that is so wonderful, so great. So all the people I know, all the race car drivers, all the team owners. But there was also the reality of some loss as well. People coming and going was also a natural part of life. I was too much in the man's world. There were divorces, you know, split up. So that part... I had made some good friends, but then they would get divorced or something. So I'm in the male field. My best friends in this field are mostly men because they're the same people I've known for 50 years in this business. During your timing days, um, probably in your early, in your 20s, how have those relationships evolved? How often do you get to see people that you saw during like your timing days? Well, we'd see them every event, every race. We'd see the same people. It's a traveling circus. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and we'd have social time. We'd always go out to dinner, dress up, and go out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just have, you know, just have a good time and enjoy each other's company. I also moved on to different series in my PR business. So, mm-hmm. uh, But you would still see the same people at other events. They have galas. They have awards, dinners, and nowadays, that's how I get to see all my old friends. Even though Judy's days as a timer was only a portion of her career, the 70s are chock full of stories of her experiences, fond memories and recounts of a golden era in sports car racing history. Well, I remember with the Penske team, we used to win a lot and party a lot. Uh, You know, we threw everybody in a swimming pool after winning a championship and even tires went into the swimming pool. Uh, It was so intense that we let loose, uh, you know, afterwards a lot, and it was fun. One time, when, after winning a championship race, Mark Donahue, the driver from the Penske team, was about to drive the victory lap. And somebody often rides in the passenger seat, although there's no seat there and carries the flag and they go for a lap. So finally, after winning the championship, it was my turn to go in with Mark. And there's photos of me being pulled in and out of the cars. So I go into the passenger seat of this Trans Am Camaro and I'm given the flag and Mark looks at me, goes, ah, it's you. And so he went at full speed, full speed for that entire lap. And I'm hanging onto that flag, to every inch of my life hanging onto that flag. When I got back, we got back, there was nothing left of the flag. It was all tatters, but I had that stick in my hand still. But there was nothing left of that flag, and that was kind of funny. As technology changed, Judy tried to adjust to different ways of timing. 
Later on, I got a little bit involved with the technology. It wasn't computerized timing yet, but somehow I found this gentleman in California who could put together a system for me where I had monitors, and I put monitors in, in the pits of the teams I was working for. That could be 10 or 12, all the way down the pit lane with coaxial cables attached to them so that the gal sitting next to me with a keyboard could punch in the numbers and it would come out on the screen and they would come out in order on the screen. The only thing that was computerized was the order. She would type in the times and they would come out in order on the screen. So it was my placebo computerized timing and scoring. It was still manual. Different equipment, different systems of presenting the data, but it often caused more problems than helpful results. They didn't have flat screen monitors during the 70s. Their monitor screens were big tube monitors shaped like cubes. But that became such a burden. That was so much work to put down all the monitors, the coaxial cables, and you know something is always going to go wrong. And half the time what went wrong is that they forgot to turn on their monitor and they come running up in the middle of the race. It doesn't work, it doesn't work. I send people down there and it's just a matter of turning the button to turn it on. You know, simple things that were very aggravating and took up my time during the intense focus. Judy said that once she started using the new system with monitors and coaxial cables, it was essentially the beginning of the end. Eventually, the new technology was cumbersome. It was too much. I said, well, it was time to quit. Before the 24 hours of Daytona, which is in early February, and the, year, the December before I wrote a letter or email, however we communicated back then by letter, and said to... Um, all of the teams I, that I would ordinarily work for. And I said, okay, um, if you don't commit to me by a certain date for the 24-hour race of Daytona, I will be retiring. I don't know if anybody made it by that date, but the next day they all started you know, calling, okay, we want your services. And I said, you know what, it's too late. I made that commitment that that is the day, the deadline date, and I am retiring. And that was it. Judy stuck by her word and her deadline. Although Judy doesn't time car races anymore, she's still deeply involved in the sports car racing world. She still works in public relations and has a thriving business. Judy's an accomplished writer and editor. Her book, The Stripest Guide to Auto Race Timing and Scoring, Modern Sports Car Series, is the standard on how to manually time races. And in 2021, Judy was inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame. It was an exciting time to have front row seats at sports car races during the 70s. Since there wasn't much television, people actually came out to the tracks to watch the races. And they followed Trans Am and Can Am, the series that I would be working with. You talk to anybody today who follows racing, and those, that's the golden era. The racing was so fabulous, so tight, so close, so competitive. Trans Am wasn't that technologically advanced, but Can-Am racing, which were prototypes, which cars with no rules, like do the most craziest thing to go fast, and that's, that's the car. 
asked Judy what was rewarding during her days working as a timer. She did mention, of course, a cold beer at the end of a 24-hour race did hit the spot. But for now, I'll leave you with this final story Judy shared. This was Le Mans, 24 Hours of Le Mans, don't remember the year. It was for the Mazda team. It was an American team, but it was uh, the Busby team, and B.F. Goodrich was the tire company and sponsor. And it was in the C2 class, which is second to the main class. So they were not running for the lead, they were running for the win of their class. Which was great, because I only was working for them, so I only scored their class. I left out all the other cars in my lap chart. And so the Mazda factory was there. We had Japanese drivers. Because I only scored the class, it was less difficult, obviously. And so we kept really good track. We did very well. It was a, a great competition because we would take the lead, we'd make a pit stop, we'd lose the lead. We'd get, and it became very exciting. And so everybody's watching that board. And uh, 24 hours is over, and I'm, I'm just relaxing, getting that cold beer. So I go to the hospitality area, the Mazda hospitality area, and I kind of lay down on this bench, um, which is a mistake. You could fall asleep so easily after being up for 40 hours. But I just lay there, and I see this wall of Japanese people coming towards me. And I stand up, and they come towards me, and it's uh, drivers, executives, and the wives of the drivers. And they stand in front of me, and they all bow. And they say, thank you for a perfect job. And I was like, oh my god, wow, that's pretty special, very special. Special thanks to our interviewee, Judy Stropas. There are so many wonderful articles and other podcasts that Judy has made an appearance on, and we're honored she took some time to be here with the NAWCC. In the episode, I mentioned a presentation Judy did with the NAWCC in 2019. You can find that recorded on their website at nawcc.org. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Anna Tran. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Our theme music was composed by Mark Ryan and Keith Lehman, and it was performed by Keith Lehman. This is the NAWCC Podcast. Thanks for listening.